Hi, my name is Kirk Kinder, and this is Saving Yourself from Wall Street, the podcast for people who want to avoid Wall Street's sales tactics, high cost, and conflicted advice so they can take control of their financial life. So let's get to it. In this week's episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast, we're going to finish up our discussion on the long-term investment trends that I see. Uh, this is a follow-up from our first presentation. Now, our first presentation on long-term investment trends, really, we didn't talk investments at all. In fact, what I talked mostly about was the banking sector. And I know a lot of people were probably wondering, why are you spending so much time talking about how banking works and how that fits in with the Federal Reserve when we're talking about investment themes? Well, the reason is it's going to play an enormous factor, I think, and your investment returns in the coming decade or more. So I always want to kind of just talk about what I sort of see in the horizon here. And right now, the way I kind of see it is we have a natural tendency for deflation right now. If the economy were left to function on its own, we would probably be experiencing a massive amount of deflation. But... Going back to the discussion on the banking sector, but the Federal Reserve is going to fight that with everything that they've got. And at this point, it seems like no cards are off the table. They're going to do whatever it takes to fight deflation. So this presentation is kind of a a mashup of some of them that I've given to clients. I do a webinar twice a month on Saturday mornings for clients. I've mentioned before in previous podcasts, if you would like to get a link or an invitation to this, all you have to do is sign up for our newsletter at savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. Sign up for our newsletter there and we'll alert you to the upcoming webinars that I'm holding for clients with the opportunity to sign up for that. So you can get all this information. And the reason you may want to do that is I do include a lot of graphs to sort of visually show some of the points that I'm making. And it's particularly true with what I'm doing right here. My discussions of inflation, deflation, they're all backed up by some historical information that's been presented in a graphical format. You can also find these videos that I've done in the past for clients on our website, savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. So, you know, if you wanted to see the visuals, you can always go there and find pretty much the same presentation with the visuals. Uh, So anyway, I'll try to do the best I can considering the podcast is just audio and I'll try to present as much as of the information that I can in a format that you understand, but it is kind of helpful to have graphs in front of you. Uh, So what I'll try to do is in the show notes, I'll put in links to the presentation that we've had. So if you, if you have a chance, you can maybe go to the show notes and check out the links there. So anyway, as you see some of these presentations that I do, you're going to see this one picture that I use every single week when I'm talking about long-term investment trends. And it's two sumo wrestlers. And they're about to engage each other. And one sumo wrestler I define as deflation, one I define as inflation. So as I said before, the natural tendency for the economy is going to be to deflate. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the Fed is doing everything in its power to create inflation. And it's going to be a yin and yang back and forth battle. Because usually what happens 
is the Federal Reserve will act if they start to sniff out some deflation. They'll do a quantitative easing. They'll, you know, they'll buy corporate bonds. They'll do whatever they can to inject liquidity into the financial system. And then once that liquidity is in there, they start to think, all right, mission accomplished. But they're really not fixing the underlying issues that are associated with deflation. So as soon as the fix, as soon as that hit of Federal Reserve intervention starts to wear off, deflation is going to come back in. So as we talk about a long-term trend, the, the big thing I do want you to think about is it's not going to be a linear shoot straight to whatever my predictions are. The reality is there's going to be a back and forth between inflation and deflation. So I think with the amount of liquidity sloshing around and the amount of volatility, it's probably going to be a pretty rough decade for investors. Uh, I don't think the buy and hold is going to do quite as well as it has in the past. And I, I've always kind of been sort of a buy, hold, and rebalance sort of guy. But I think there's going to be a lot of you know, a lot of issues with what's going on, a lot of market movements, and the market's going to move quick one way or another uh, because I think that there's so many people and so much liquidity on one side that when it starts to shift to the other, it shifts quickly. So let me first make the case for deflation. And, and when I do that, I talk about the four horsemen, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, we have a four horsemen for the investment environment. Uh, the first one I always talk about is just stock market valuations. Now, there's a lot of talk about valuations and how they may not be as appropriate in today's world as they were in the past, or the fact that valuations are going to be much higher because of the low interest rates on bonds. So when you could get 5 6 7% on bonds or treasuries, it, it you know you couldn't have stock market valuations go too high because people would leave and go collect that 5 or 6% in treasuries or high-grade corporate bonds. Well, now with these corporate bonds and treasuries yielding below 1.5%, people are putting their money where they think they'll get a better return, which would be stocks. So a 1.5%, 2.5%, you know, some, something like that, that kind of yield in bonds that's not that difficult to beat in equity. So a lot more money has gone to that, which drives up valuations. But I still believe that over the longer term, valuations do dictate what your long-term return is going to be. And when we look at valuations, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue that we're not in the most expensive stock market valuation period ever. You know, possibly the year 2000 when we had the tech bubble was a little bit higher on some metrics, but on other metrics, we are more expensive today than we've ever been. You know, for instance, like at the S&P 500 price relative to sales, we have now just surpassed the 2000 peak. So based on sales, we are more expensive right now than we've ever been. Uh, we're also more expensive when you look at the S&P 500 and compare enterprise value divided by EBITDA. And EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. So when you look at enterprise value divided by earnings after all the, the good stuff's been pulled out, we are once again hitting the, the 2000 peak. And Crestcat Capital, who does a lot of great research, came out with S&P 500 valuations 
looking at several different valuation metrics. In fact, they look at uh, eight different valuation metrics. Uh, they look at margin adjusted price to earnings, uh, the medium enterprise value relative to sales, excluding financials. They look at total market cap to gross domestic product or GDP, which is Warren Buffett's favorite, enterprise value to free cash flow, excluding financials, uh, meeting price to sales, the Robert Schiller cyclically adjusted price to earnings or CAPE valuation, meeting price to book, and then medium enterprise value to EBITDA, which we've already talked about. And as they look at these, they track them historically. And right now we are in the 99th percentile for four of those valuations. And the lowest percentile we're in is the medium enterprise value of the EBITDA, which is in 94%. And then the price to book is at 96% historical percentile as far as how expensive the market is. And then the CAPE is in the 96th percentile as well. So essentially what we're looking at is darn near the most expensive market ever in the history of the United States. So you have to wonder, can that continue? Can valuations continue to go up? Now, obviously, if earnings start to climb rapidly, then the valuations get to be a much better a value. Things start to come down and become a better value for you as an investor. Uh, but when usually when you get valuations this high, it gives you a pretty good idea you're not going to get a very good long-term return. And probably one of the best at predicting this using valuation metrics is Jeremy Grantham. Uh, he is an original partner of uh, G GMO Investing. And just go back and look all the way back to before the tech bubble in 2000, Jeremy does a seven-year projection on different asset classes. And when you look at his predictions, they're pretty darn close. Obviously, nobody's going to be perfect, but he has been really good. And what he's saying right now when he looks at valuations in the U.S. market, he's actually predicting over the next seven years a negative 2.5% return. Negative. Uh, in fact, he said it's the biggest bubble he's ever seen. So... That doesn't tell you when these valuations are going to correct. It doesn't tell you if the market's going to come back. It doesn't tell you anything about short-term movements. It's just more of what can you expect as a longer-term investor. So, you know, as an investor, you have to say just naturally things are going to deflate, valuations are going to come down, and the way those valuations usually come down, it's not through the growth of earnings. It's from market corrections. But that doesn't mean that's going to happen. I'm just saying that's one of the debt deflation horsemen, if you will. It's something that is going to be a headwind for you as an investor going forward. The second horseman of the investing apocalypse is just the amount of debt that we have. Now, if you happen to be a client of mine and we've worked together for a long time, ever since I've gotten into this business in 2002, I've started to show what I consider one of my favorite graphs. And all it is, is it takes the total U.S. debt. And when I mean total, I mean treasury debt, so government debt. It's got corporate debt and individual debt. Take total debt of the U.S. market and compare that to the gross domestic product 
or GDP, which is essentially the benchmark for the economy. So the GDP is supposed to capture everything, all the economic activity in the economy. And you could take this chart all the way back to the late 1800s. And what you'll find is a pretty stable line for the most part up until you, we hit a couple periods. The first period is the late 20s, 1920s. And what you saw there, obviously, before we headed into the Great Depression, you started to see debt as a percentage of GDP start to climb. And it really started to climb rapidly after the Great Depression started because the debt kind of remained, but GDP was shrinking rapidly. So at the peak of the U.S. debt to GDP ratio during the Great Depression, we hit a, a debt to GDP ratio of 300% or $3 of debt for every dollar of economic activity. And then as we recovered through the Great Depression, got through World War II, you started to see this number come back down. It went to a much healthier, about 140 to 160% or $1.4 to $1.6 of debt to GDP. But then since the 1970s, it's slowly been climbing back up. And this has been a very precipitous climb. And in fact, at the peak of the 2008, right before the market crashed, <coughs> we had a, a ratio of 360% debt to GDP. So whereas the Great Depression, the max was 300%, we, are, we hit... 360% or $3.60 of debt for every dollar of economic activity. That was the peak. And it came, came down a bit after, you know, the Great Recession of 08, but it's now again starting to climb back up and we're way, we're about 330% debt to GDP at this time. So that's going to be another major headwind that could cause deflation in the economy. Because the more and more debt that you have, it crowds out proper investment. It, um, it basically makes it more difficult to pay for all of your interest cost on that debt. So it really starts to slow down economic growth. Because the problem is, if you, you, know, you can build up debt. Look at it as an individual. You can spend more on your credit card than you're paying off for a long time. The credit card companies typically only make you pay 2 to 3% of the balance every single payment. <coughs> Excuse me. So you can go a long time with credit card debt and continue to build it up. But then all of a sudden, you get to a balance where that 2 to 3% of your debt is, is pretty big and you can't make that payment. So at that point, there's really no good choices. You either default on the debt, which is highly deflationary, Um, you either stop your spending, so you have to cut spending elsewhere in order to pay on the debt. So that is also deflationary because the economy is going to shrink. Uh, you know, or the third thing is you're going to have to sell assets in order to pay that debt. So you might, as an individual, you're going to sell probably personal belongings, furniture, maybe a car, other things, jewelry. Uh, but if you, as an investor, you're going to have to sell other assets. So you might have to sell stocks. You might have to sell bonds. You might have to sell real estate. That's deflationary. 
So that's why debt is such an enormous deflation detriment. The third horseman of the deflation apocalypse is the upcoming unfunded liabilities in demographics. So we, we have a trend where the baby boomers are now pretty much fully into retirement mode. And what are they going to need during retirement? Social Security and Medicare. And the problem is our government has so mismanaged Social Security and Medicare, it's just ridiculous. When people tell me that Social Security and Medicare have been an enormous success, I tell them that's because we haven't gotten to the, the bad part yet. We haven't gotten to the point where we're paying so much out in benefits. Social Security and Medicare at one point when it first got going, they basically had a lot more people contributing in to Social Security than they had collecting it. And at the peak, I think it was almost 10 people contributing in to Social Security and Medicare for every recipient. And in fact, in um, you know 1970, there was almost four people paying in for every beneficiary. And by 2030, that number is going to be almost two people paying in for every beneficiary. I think it's 2.3. So you have a situation where you're going to have fewer and fewer people paying in. Now, back in the days when we had a huge surplus, had the government actually managed it like a surplus and set up a trust fund, built a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, we probably have plenty of money in there so that when we have this shortfall due to the baby boomers aging, it might not really have any impact on us. But the problem is we're not there. Uh, we're in a situation where we're facing just massive amounts of unfunded liabilities here for Medicare and Social Security in, in the upcoming decade. I mean, it's just massive. Um, right now, you know, we're, we're projecting that, you know, essentially... By the time we get to 2028, about 24% of all economic spending. So the Social Security and Medicare is going to make up 24% of our GDP, or at least that's what the spending is going to be. So you take our GDP, Social Security and Medicare is going to be 24% of that. By 2038, that's 26%. By 2048, it's almost 30%. That, that's just huge. Um, and the thing is, our revenue, our tax revenue over the same periods in 2028, it's going to be 18.5% of GDP is what we're bringing in. So just on Social Security and Medicare, we're spending 23.6, the equivalent of that of GDP, or relative to GDP. And then we're only bringing in 18.5%. And that revenue is supposed to finance the entire government, not just Social Security and Medicare. So the tax revenues are going to be relative to about 18.5% of GDP, but just Social Security and Medicare along 23.6%. And that's just in seven more years. So if it, you know, we'd have to basically cut out all the military spending and every other program the government has, and we would still have a 5 percent deficit and that goes up 2038 tax revenues are projected to be 19.1 percent of gdp and again social security and medicare alone 26.3 percent 2048 
revenue 19.8% of GDP, whereas spending in Social Security and Medicare 29.3. So this is completely unsustainable. And it's not just Social Security and Medicare. We also have another big issue with public pensions, state pensions. These things are so underfunded. It's unbelievable. Now, with Social Security and Medicare, there is absolutely no accounting measurements to ensure that liabilities were funded. The government took whatever surplus that was there and just spent it on anything else, other programs, the military, whatever. Uh, the state is supposed to have a process, an accounting process in place by law to keep unfunded pension liabilities from getting too large. But they've been doing shenanigans all the time in order to stop funding. You know, for instance, sometimes if the investment earnings on the pension fund was more than what the actuaries had originally projected, they would take that surplus between the projection and the actual investment returns. And they'd say, well, that's a contribution to the pensions for this next year. We don't have to put state tax dollars in there. We don't have to take any of our current revenue and put it in for the pension. We'll just assume that the excess return is the contribution. And that's not how you run it because you know there's going to be years where you have poor returns. But that's what they were doing. So now we're in a situation where some states are just, just massively underfunded as far as their pensions. Uh, the biggest ones are Alaska, believe it or not. California, probably not a big shock there considering how much money they waste. Uh, Illinois is really bad. New York State, again, not very good. Uh, Wyoming, Oregon, and Nevada are not all that, they're not in good shape either. And Ohio and Pennsylvania are also going to struggle. So really all the states have some issues, but those states I just mentioned are really going to have a problem. At some point, they're either going to have to figure out some sort of bailout, which could happen, uh, or they're going to have to cut benefits. And some of them have put in their constitutions that they can't cut benefits. But, you know, you're, you're just not going to be able to raise taxes on people to pay for a retiree's pension for too long. People are going to leave. They'll leave those states and go to states that are better equipped to handle their pension obligations. Uh, just in the past 17 years, uh, pension debts have quintupled. Okay, that, that's the U.S. state and local pensions. And they now have debt that's well over $2 trillion. So we have a situation here which would be very deflationary if they either have to cut these pensions for people. The less spending, there's going to be uh, obviously less savings. It's just not going to be good. Even if they try to make it whole, they're going to have to take more tax dollars, which is deflationary on those who are not receiving the pension. So the final horseman of deflation, the fourth horseman, is just the U.S. dollar. And a lot of people, this is a thing, like if the U.S. dollar does strengthen, then that is going to be a deflationary effect on the investment climate. Now, you could make a case that we're going to continue to see dollar strength relative to the rest of the world. 
If you look at interest rates in the U.S. compared to many other developed nations, our interest rates are actually higher than they are in even countries with horrible issues like Greece and Italy and Spain. So that actually could mean that the U.S. dollar will strengthen because money will run to buy our bonds. And the other thing that could make you think that we're going to have a stronger dollar is just if you look at the long-term trend in the federal funds rate, as well as the 10-year treasury or anything like that related to treasury, we've had a downward pattern since the 1980s, early 1980s. And that really could continue. This is a, this is a part where the graphs that I show would be really helpful, but it still looks like we could drive to the point where we get into negative interest rates. And long as our rates are still higher than the rest of the world, that could still be pretty good for the dollar on the longer term trend. So those are the things that it's gonna be a battle to see how the deflation is dealt with. Um, now, the thing that I mentioned at the outset is how are they gonna fight the deflation? And actually, let me step back for a second and talk a little bit about what asset classes you might wanna think about when we start to see any kind of deflationary environment. If the dollar starts to strengthen these assets tend to do better. If, um, if debt becomes a bigger issue, continues to be a bigger issue, where it's starting to deflate, or if the stock market starts to pull back because of the high valuations, these deflationary assets should do pretty well. Probably the biggest thing that would work there is long-dated treasuries. Very safe, secure. And you're not buying treasuries at this point in a deflationary environment for the yield. There's really not much yield there anymore. You're, you're well under 1.5%, even on a 30-year treasury. It's the capital appreciation. Uh, some other things that do well in deflationary assets, well, value stocks tend to do better than growth stocks. It doesn't mean that value stocks won't lose money, but they typically lose a lot less than a growth stock. So you wanna look for companies with low price to earnings, high dividend, uh, typically a defensive sector, Things like utilities, consumer staples, and healthcare tend to shine in these environments. Another asset class that you'd want to look for is gold. Uh, even though gold is typically known as an inflationary hedge, it also does well in times of crisis or deflation. And then the last thing that you'd want to be invested in is obviously being long some sort of dollar index. You know, being long the dollar is very good. You could also be long on volatility because more than likely the stock market will be pulling back and volatility will be increasing. So those are typically what you're gonna see in deflationary environments. And again, I think we're gonna have the yin and yang. We're gonna have the two sumo wrestlers with inflation and deflation. So you might have to be a little nimble as an investor to move in and out of these assets. Because my longer term trend in belief is that we're going to have inflation. Again, as I said at the outset, the Federal Reserve is going to do everything it can in order to avoid deflation. It's not going to fix the underlying causes that could cause the deflation or lead to deflation. The four horsemen are going to remain in place. The Fed's just going to pump in cash to try to avoid anything from correcting an a normal free market system. 
So if you look at the Fed's balance sheet historically, you could go all the way back to the 1970s and carry it forward for about four decades. And the Fed's balance sheet was about $800 billion. The vast majority of that was in treasuries. As I discussed in the first segment about long-term trends, uh, the Fed in 2008 really started to build their balance sheet. Now, we didn't see inflation back then because all it did was reliquify the banks. So essentially, the banks were able to take their bad assets that they had from the 2008-2009 debacle, put that on the Fed's balance sheet, and the Fed printed clean cash to make the banks whole. So that money stayed within the banking system. Now, it did creep out into asset prices like stocks, bonds, and real estate. But for the most part, it didn't get into the individual consumer's hands. We weren't taking that money and being able to go spend it at Amazon or Target or Walmart or anything like that. Well, what's going on right now is just the opposite. So since the COVID hit back in February, the Fed has added $3 trillion to its balance sheet. So again, to give you some perspective, from the 1970s for about four decades, the balance sheet was about $800 billion. From 2008 until 2020, it rose from $800 billion to $4 trillion. And then it's added $3 trillion just in this last year. And the difference is this money is getting into our hands. So the federal government essentially created all these programs that put money in our hands. Uh, at first, in March, it was the CARES Act, so everybody got the $1,200 uh, stimulus. Uh, people were getting extended unemployment and increased unemployment benefits. The PPP loans were getting into the hands of business owners, and it was all just printed money, but it was being spent. And it's like anything in life, the law of economics is going to dictate at some point. So if we increase the demand for products and services by giving money, just handing out printed money, and now everybody takes that money and goes to Amazon or Walmart, you've got increased demand with a stable amount of supply. So what's going to happen? Prices have to go up, and they're going to. That's where the inflation is going to come in. So we're going to start to see inflation, I think, on prices of ordinary goods along with financial assets. But even, even if you've been watching through the year 2020, the price for meats and milks and, and groceries has been rising quite rapidly. <clears throat> and, um, I, you know, I, I just don't see the Federal Reserve not continuing down this trend. So as we start to have shortfalls with Social Security and Medicare, the Fed's just going to print money and buy treasury so that the government can fund it. So all of this money, this shortfall in Social Security and Medicare, is just going to be made up money. So you're still going to have the spending by all the people, whether it's at the medical you know, facilities, or they just get it in their Social Security and they go out and spend it at Walmart and Amazon. You're still going to have that same spending with just printed dollars. So again, you're going to have more and more dollars sloshing in the system, chasing the same amounts of goods and services. Price is going to go up.
Um, all of the quantitative easing and money printing the Fed has been doing has been good for the stock market. Again, if you could see the graph I have, it provides more clarity. But if you go back to 2008 and you look at the quantitative easings that the Fed has done in the periods where the Fed stopped quantitative easing for temporarily, you'll see the stock market rises during QE and falls when it stops. So QE1 in December of 2008 through March of uh, 2010, stock market went up 42%. So in March of 10, it stopped, and then the market pulled back 11%. When it did that, the Fed panicked again and came out with QE2, which took us from November 10 to June 11th. Market jumped 24%. June 11th, or June 2011, QE2 stopped. Market pulls back 15%. Again, the Fed panics and does. They didn't want to do another QE, so they did what they called Operation Twist, just a different name for QE. So that was from September 2011 to June of 12. Market drop, or market went up 20%. When that eased again, market pulls back 10%. They panic, institute QE3. Market goes up 16%. So this gets back to the yin and yang, the sumo wrestlers. There's a lot of periods where the Fed's going to take action, and that's going to be an inflationary bonanza. But soon as anything stops or slows, that deflation is going to come right back. So we'll always have that yin and yang. But at this point, I think the Fed is just all on board with printing money, whether it's Social Security and Medicare. And it probably will even be the state pensions. Now, technically, uh, a state pension is not supposed to get any kind of federal funding. The state has to balance its budget. And then the state can take out debt to cover some of these expenses, but their credit is really based on some leg legitimate factors. Like they can't just do what the federal government does with massive amounts of debt. But I have a feeling somehow they're going to create a situation where the Fed can print money to bail out California or New York or Pennsylvania um, just to cover their pensions. So again, a lot more money chasing the same amounts of goods and services. That's just not good. Uh, so I think the longer term trend, you know, maybe like a you know seven to 10 year investment horizon, while we'll have periods of deflation in there, I think the longer term trend is going to be inflation. So, and if you look at some of the asset classes that tend to do well in these periods, it's going to be things that have a scarcity of supply, a scarcity of assets. So some of the, the biggest things that you want to look at, the first one that should jump out at you is commodities. There's pretty much a finite supply of commodities. Sure, we, we are mining more every year. We're pulling more out of wells, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, really, for the most part, it, you're not, you can't just create more of that stuff on its own. It has to be pulled out of the ground somehow. And you're kind of limited in what you can get out from that. So commodities will probably do pretty well. And I also think that that is backed up by just long-term cyclical trends. Everything in life is cyclical, especially in investing. 
And if you look at long-term commodity prices relative to things like the stock market, we are seeing valuations that we haven't seen since the year 2000. So the, the stock market compared to commodities or gold, you've got a lot of value in those holdings because the ratio is so low. Uh, it's at lows, typically it's at positions where you see a turnabout anyway. So even if we didn't have the Fed going crazy with the money printing, we're at cyclicalities where you typically see these things turn anyway. So commodities, probably just by the, the general nature of cycles, is due to outperform stocks. But when you throw in a Fed that is essentially going crazy with, the, with printing, it's going to be even bigger. So commodity-based investments are going to be something that will do really well. Uh, specifically, I think gold and precious metals will do well. Uh, as the dollar loses its value, gold is probably going to be, you know, the sort of a safe haven, a way for you to keep your purchasing power. So I do expect gold to do very well over the next few years. And here again, just looking at natural cycles, it is awfully low relative to the S&P 500. And if we were going to ever hit the peak of the gold to S&P, so the point where gold was really outperforming the S&P 500, and this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, the ratio of gold to S&P, gold would have to grow at six times the rate of the S&P 500. Not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that that's what we're looking at. Uh, another asset class that I think will probably do well it usually does better in deflationary environments, but I think value is also going to see its its day come. Value also tends to do pretty well in inflationary environments because people want a more reliable stream of income. They want to make sure they're getting a large amount of profits from the companies that they're investing in. So a lot of these companies that are really overvalued, a lot of tech companies, that don't have a lot of profit and have an enormous price to earnings ratio right now. Well, if I have a choice between one of those and a more safer company that's producing a lot more profits per share, well, I want that cash to protect me from inflation. So I think value is going to do pretty well. I also, like I've mentioned just previously, value is at a historical low relative to growth, if you're going to compare the two. Getting back to that cyclical market, we're in a situation where we, we haven't seen value this cheap since the year 2000. And if you look at how value did the next decade compared to growth, it, it massively outperformed from 2000 to 2010. So I, I kind of think that being in value stocks is going to be a good position for you going forward. Obviously, the commodities are going to do well, particularly, I think, gold. Uh, another asset class that is really new and has a lot of people scared and has a lot of people confused, but I, I like Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is definitely a finite supply. It's a finite asset. So in an inflationary environment, that's going to do well. And unlike gold or other commodities, you can't really, you can't really mine more Bitcoin. Now, there's still some Bitcoin being mined, you know, we're going to have 21 million Bitcoins total. Uh, 
We don't have all 21 million yet available for investment. So there's still some coming on the market, but we know that that 21 million is the end result. That's it. So if we have inflation, Bitcoin is probably the only asset with a totally, totally fixed amount of supply. So it will do pretty well. And I've done other podcasts and interviews on Bitcoin if you want to dig deeper into why I like Bitcoin and how I think it's it's not just like a digital gold, but it's also revolutionizing the entire banking and payment system. That's something you can dig into with other resources I provided. But I think it's going to do pretty well as an investment. It's going to be volatile as all get out, but I think it'll be a good investment. Uh, some other things you're probably going to want to think about if we start to really see inflation spike uh, going to shorter term bonds, you know, sell your long term bonds. Uh, I like tips. Uh, tips are treasury inflated protected security. So they are bonds, but they have an inflation protection built in so that the amount that you invest in the tip, the principal will grow by the rate of inflation. So if you're looking at bonds, you want to be short term or inflation protected. Uh, again, commodities. Bitcoin, gold. I like having uh, some value stocks in there. I also like emerging markets. Emerging markets, we're going to do pretty well in inflationary environment because they tend to do well when the U.S. dollar is depreciating or deflating. And the other thing is a lot of emerging market countries, their export economies and they export a lot of commodities. They're going to export a lot of raw goods. So if commodities are doing well, then emerging markets that ship out a lot of commodities should also do well. So I think the longer term trend, you might want to overweight a little bit more to commodities. Most people don't have any allocation to commodities, including gold. Want to change your bond outlook a little bit to some shorter term bonds and inflation protected bonds. You want to look at some value stocks and emerging market stocks. I think you'd be good on both of those. Even emerging market debt will probably perform pretty well. Jumping back to Jeremy Grantham, the only asset class that he really sees a positive return on over the next seven years is emerging market stocks and bonds. Uh, and, and the other thing is, you, you, you know, you want to be invested in the market overall. If inflation hits, that's going to be a good place to be, typically. It wasn't in the 70s and early 80s because bond yields were climbing so people could move their money to very high bond yields. So it really hit the stock market at that point. Uh, but for the most part, if we have really rapid inflation, stocks should do pretty well. So, you know, my, that's my longer term. You know, if you were going to put money away and not look at it for seven or eight years, those are the asset classes I would look at. But I do think you need to be thinking that there are going to be periods you know, it could be a month, could be three months, could be six months, where we're going to have some pretty strong deflation, mostly because we have trends in the market and in the economy that are deflationary. So again, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you listening on this. Highly recommend you go to savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. Sign up for our newsletter so you can be kept abreast of all the presentations I give uh, to clients along with all the other webinars and podcasts that I do. So again, thank you. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Well, that's it for this episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. I appreciate you stopping in. 
As always, you can find our podcast along with other articles and videos at savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. And now, the lawyers say hi. Saving Yourself from Wall Street is hosted by Kurt Kinder. Kurt Kinder is the owner of Picket Fence Financial, a fee-only financial planning firm. Picket Fence Financial is regulated by the states of Maryland and Florida in accordance and in compliance with securities laws and regulations. Picket Fence Financial does not render or offer to render personalized financial or tax advice through the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.